of 1 Kings 17, getting our first look at Elijah the Tishbite. In the stories of Elijah and Elisha, we'll take us through the rest of 1 Kings and the first portion of 2 Kings. But before we read from 1 Kings 17, starting on page 555 in the Pew Bible, let's pray together. God of mercy and grace, you give us your word. And as we come to your word today, we we see your grace, your unmerited, lovely, beautiful grace. And we see that you provide for us. You sustain your people and your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of food. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. I had a visit from the Jehovah's Witnesses this week and I really get a kick out of Jehovah's Witnesses. But they came when I was busy. It always seems like they come when you're busy. But Anna came up to me, my daughter Anna came up to me, and she said, Dad, there's two ladies walking up the sidewalk to the house. And I figured it had to be Jehovah's Witnesses. We don't have ladies walk up to the house in pairs very often. And sure enough, I was right. I opened the door, and they began asking me their their questions. And I said, why don't you come in and talk? So I offered them something to drink. We sat down at the kitchen table. I grabbed my Bible, and we talked. Now, they always begin the same way. They always have the same talking points. Now, that's not a slam or a slight on them. I'm actually quite impressed. They, 
they all use the same script. They're all very well trained. I think perhaps we should be embarrassed that these ladies who don't have the Holy Spirit and don't have the true gospel are better trained than those of us who do have the Holy Spirit and do have the true gospel. They're better trained to share their false gospel than we are to train the true gospel. But they always start at the same point. They always say, look around. Look at the tornadoes and the earthquakes and the hurricanes and the tsunamis. Does God care? That's where they want to start. And so yes, I think God cares. We talk about that. But they don't really want to talk so much about does God care. They want rather to ask the question, who is God? Who is God? And of course, they want you to answer the question the way they answer the question. That their God is God. The problem with their God is that He's not that God. He's not godly. He's not big enough. He's not strong enough. He's not great enough. And He's not great enough to save. But we went round and round on the question of who is the real God. And it was great that I was fresh on this from teaching a few weeks ago. We went right to Mark 1, verse 3, and we saw that Mark says that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And they left a little stumped, a little puzzled, and a little curious, and I invited them to come join us sometime, and I hope, by God's grace, they do. You could tell that they were very confused by the presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. That Jesus is the Jehovah that we sang about. I hope it drives them crazy. I hope it drives them crazy until it drives them here. Drives them to Jesus. But that question is at the heart of our passage today. Who is the real God? You see, if you would have asked the average Israelite in the time of Elijah, who is the real God? They would have said, Baal is God. And that would have certainly been the answer of Israel's king and Israel's queen, Ahab and Jezebel. But there were a few, a few remaining faithful people who would have answered, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is the, the Hebrew name that God gives to Himself. It's translated Jehovah sometimes. If you look in the Old Testament in your English Bible, sometimes Lord is, is spelled L, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. Sometimes it's all caps, L-O-R-D. That, that's the translation of Yahweh, Jehovah. This is the covenant Lord of Israel. And so some would have said, Baal is God, and a few would have said, the Lord is God. And so what you have for the remainder of the existence of Elijah, at least on the earth and the time of Ahab, you have a divine competition to determine who is God. Is Baal God or is the Lord God? And the two primary combatants in this battle between the gods are Ahab and Jezebel on the one side and Elijah on the other. And so round one in the battle comes to us in this passage here today. And we see that we'll begin here just in verse one. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Years without rain. A famine that lasts, as Jesus says in Luke, as we'll see later, a famine that lasts for three and a half years. This would have been 
devastating to the economies and to the families of those who were affected by it. So, so what is the Lord doing? Why no rain? Why wreak this havoc upon these people? Is the Lord being vindictive? No, that's not really it. You see, Baal was the rain god. Baal was the storm god. And Baal was a fertility god. And so by withholding the rain, the Lord is hitting Baal where it hurts. See, look how worthless he is. Look how powerless he is. If I don't want there to be rain, there's no rain. Baal is a worthless, powerless, impotent idol. You can pray to him all day long. It won't do you any good. If I say there's no rain, then there's no rain. Because the Lord is God. Then the drama goes a bit more because, of course, Ahab was none too pleased with Elijah and his word and his challenge to him, his wife, and his God. So Elijah goes off into hiding. We see that in verses 2 to 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. Elijah goes into hiding. Down by this brook, Ahab wants to kill him. The Lord isn't going, to let a, isn't going to let Elijah be killed. But there's more to it than that. Elijah is one of the few rare characters in the Bible where he embodies in his person the presence of God. That he embodies in his person the presence of the Word of the Lord. So that where Elijah goes, there the presence of the Word of the Lord goes. And so when Elijah goes off into hiding, it's as if the Word of the Lord goes off into hiding. There's, there's no presence of the Word of the Lord with the people of Israel when the Lord is hiding with Elijah. But as we see, the Lord not only hides Elijah, but He sustains Elijah. In the midst of this drought, no rain, no food, the Lord sends ravens to bring bread and meat. Now, I'm not sure I would want to eat meat of the sort that a raven would bring to me, but Elijah's life is sustained, and he is able to live. He will not be crushed by a mere mortal king. God always sustains His Word. I just mentioned in the prayer a few moments ago that today is the 482nd anniversary of the martyrdom of William Tyndale. Killed for what crime? For translating the Bible into English. And I'm going to go ahead, he did. But for hundreds of years before the time of the Reformation, it seemed as if God's Word had gone into hiding. There were very, 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 very few faithful voices preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the people didn't have the word of the Lord in their own language. They weren't allowed to read it for themselves. If they tried, they could be put to death. And so the people were entirely dependent upon the priests to teach them what the word of the Lord said. The problem with that was that the priest had long ago left the true gospel of Jesus Christ behind. And so it seemed as though darkness was once again over the entirety of the earth. And even the so-called Christian world languished in spiritual darkness. But even then, the Lord kept just a few lights of His Word flickering. 
One of those lights was a man named Jan Hus, who when he came to the Word, he was a, a priest. When he came to the Word, he said, what, what I've been taught this says isn't what this actually says. He began to preach the true gospel. He began to write about the true gospel. He too ended up getting burned at the stake, but his writings were preserved. And they were handed down from generation to generation until they came into the hands of a young, zealous monk named Martin Luther. The Lord always sustains his word, and he will not let it fail or disappear. But let's take a step back. Take a step back from the passage. And think, do I see myself in Elijah? Do I see myself in Elijah? Does, does the Lord promise to supernaturally provide with ravens or brooks or whatever? Does the Lord promise to supernaturally provide for me whenever I am in lack, whenever I am in want? I think the answer to that is no. I don't think we're meant to see ourselves as Elijah. I think we're meant to see ourselves as Jane or Joe Israelite who still loved the Lord. You know, the ravens didn't come to every Israelite who still loved the Lord. The ravens didn't bring bread and meat to every person who called upon the name of the Lord. They only brought bread and meat to Elijah. The rest of the faithful people of God were hungry, and they suffered, and they languished in the famine that lasted for three and a half years. And the rest of the people of God had to trust that even in their lack, even in their suffering, God was still God. And I don't think that's a message that resonates with us so much. We live in such affluence. But for millions and millions and millions of our brothers and sisters who live in perpetual lack around the world, the message that even in my suffering, God is still King brings and God is still king. Even if the brook dries up and the ravens never come, God is still king. But the Lord has the brook dry up. You imagine Elisha wasn't, or Elijah wasn't too terribly thrilled when the brook dried up. So the Lord sends Elijah off to go find, of all people, a widow. And in all places, Zarephath. It's important for us to recognize what Zarephath is and where Zarephath is. Zarephath is not in Israel. Zarephath is a town right near Sidon. So this is outside of Israel. It's in modern-day Lebanon, right along the Mediterranean coast. And Sidon is the city that Jezebel is from. Sidon is the heart of the beast. This is ground zero for Baal worship. Uh, Elijah is being driven into the very heart of of the pagan world. Zarephath would have been like what Salt Lake City is for Mormons, or the Vatican is for Catholics, or Jerusalem is for Jews, or Mecca is for Muslims. This is the very beating heart, the very geographic center of Baal worship. And so Elijah is sent out of Israel, off to a widow in the heart of the wicked people. There are a few lessons we can learn from this. The first is to remember that Elijah represents the presence of the word of the Lord. 
And when he leaves Israel, the Lord is for a time forsaking Israel. They had received the word, but they had not received it. It had been given to them, but they had left it behind them. And so for a time, the Lord will leave them behind him will pass over all the people you would expect him to have and send Elijah off to a widow in the middle of a pagan land. I think this is a message that we need to internalize because we have received the Lord and his word. Just look in the pew in front of you, right? There's God's word. I expect the average one of us has somewhere between six and ten Bibles in the house. We've received God's Word. But have we received it? Does it sit on our shelf? Or does it rest in our hearts? You see, it's not good enough just to have it. You have to own it. And if we don't, the same God who passed over Israel may very well pass over us. So get the word off the shelf, put it in your hands, set it before your eyes, and plant it deeply within your heart. Jesus makes the same application of this story. Jesus, when he's preaching, he's preaching in Israel, and he's not being received very well. This is what he has to say. This is in Luke 4. Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and the great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. The people tried to kill Jesus for saying that. They tried to hurl him off a cliff. The Lord spared him. But are we willing to be chastened and convicted to come back to the word of the Lord if we have left it lie for too long? The second thing I think we need to see is that Elijah is sent to a widow. Of all people. A widow. There's no social security in Zarephath. In fact, there's not even a gracious law. You see, the law of Moses commanded the people to care for widows, to care for orphans. Baal had no such, no such laws. You, you'd sooner be sacrificed to the gods if you were an orphan than you would be given some kind of merciful treatment from the people around you. And so she has, she has nothing. She has nothing left. All she has left is a little bit of food. And she's going to go make this little bit of food and she's going to die. But more than that, not only is she a a hopeless widow in a pagan land, but she is herself a pagan. Notice what she says to Elijah. As surely as the Lord your God lives. See, she believes that Elijah's God lives. He's just not her God. She believes in all kinds of gods. And she believes that Elijah has a God. But 
that's not her God. Baal is her God. So the Lord sends Elijah off to a, a pagan town to a hopeless widow who's about to die and who is a pagan to be sustained. What a goofy. And I mean that in the most reverent sense possible. What a goofy God we have who is continually turning our expectations and our assumptions on their head and demonstrating himself to be more powerful, more gracious, and more wise than we had ever dared think he was. But then together in that same thought, third, what grace we see here. This is a widow. She's hopeless. She's about to starve to death. She's a pagan. She's going to die. And she's going to go to hell. And in the last days that she expects to live, boom! There's the word of the Lord. You're awake. Boom! So is she. She is about to go and die, and Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, just walks right up to her and says, Hey you, you know, out of all the millions of people alive at this time, out of all the millions of hell-bound sinners alive at this time, the Lord picks her. A widow who's about to die, who's a pagan Baal worshiper, way outside the land of Israel, away from his chosen people, the Lord sends the prophet Elijah to one person, to her. What grace. She's about to die. She's about to go to hell. And the Word of God walks into her life, grabs her, shakes her, says, you're going to live. I'm the true God. And she lives, not only then, but forever. The Apostle Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Well, I would sure say so. This woman had nothing. And Baal had been worthless to her. But she has given everything. She receives the matchless grace of God. She receives the same grace that took unlikely sinners and unlikely saints like Ruth and Rahab before her and transforms them into saints who have received grace. The very same grace which God has given to us. But the word has a demand on her, doesn't it? Elijah says, oh, by the way, I don't need just some water, I need some bread. So she's walking away with her container of water. She's probably thinking, I'm about to die. Why do we need to go get this guy some water? And as she's walking away, he says, wait! I would like some bread. You can imagine she just goes like this. I don't have any bread. I'm about to die. I have one little bit of flour left and a little oil in my jug, she says. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. What would, what would be the normal response of somebody in that case? I am so sorry. 
I had no idea. I'm so sorry. Here, maybe take the change out of my pocket. Uh, can I, is there anything I can do for you? That's the normal response, right? That's not Elijah's response. Go ahead and get me some bread. What a jerk. <laughs> Except, right? Except that he speaks for the Lord. And the Lord still requires her to go and make some bread. A little bit for her, a little bit for her son, and a little bit for him. The Lord requires her to give everything she has to him. This is the same Lord who says, take up your cross and follow me. This is the same Lord who says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So the woman is called to risk everything she has on Elijah's God, even down to the last bit of food she has to eat. But was it really a risk? What does she have to lose? If she gives it away, maybe she dies today or tomorrow instead of the next day or the next day. But what does she have to lose? It's not really much of a risk, is it? For the chance to live when you know you're going to die? For the chance to stake it all on Israel's God, Elijah's God, instead of the worthless idol Baal who has let you down again and again and again? What does she have to lose? No different for us. What do we have to lose? God may call us away from homes and families, jobs, toys, leisure. He may call us away even from the land that we love to live in in all of its bounty. But what do we have to lose if that's what the Lord calls us to give up to have Him? hundred years from now, None of your toys are going to matter. In a hundred years from now, it will not matter what leisure or what job or even what your family was. A hundred years from now, none of that matters. We had a funeral yesterday. Nothing brings reality home like staring at a casket. One day, we take our turn in the casket. What matters? All that stuff we have, all the stuff we have, will be as worthless to us a hundred years from now as that piece of bread is to that widow right now. What matters? It's worth the risk to risk everything on Israel's God. It's worth the risk to risk everything on Christ. And that's faith. The woman goes away. She does exactly as Elijah said. She makes the bread. She gives some to Elijah, some to her son. She eats it. That's faith. She believes and she does. Faith with works. That's what she had. That's what faith is for us as well. She obeys and the Lord keeps His promise. It says the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. So let's take a look back 
and then take a look forward as well. We look back to another prophet who in his person embodied the word of the Lord, the prophet Moses. When Moses appears on the scene in Egypt, God appears on the scene in Egypt. Moses comes and with him comes judgment on Egypt and salvation for the people of God. When Moses arrives, God arrives. When Moses speaks, God speaks. Moses is the instrument and the embodiment of the Word of the Lord. And just like it was with Elijah and the all-you-can-eat flour jar, so too it is with Moses. When the people need food, there's food. And this should get us to something that we should consider. Because Moses and Elijah, and we'll see Jesus in a moment, Moses and Elijah are miracle workers. Right? And it's easy for us to look at the Scriptures and say, wow, look at all the miracles here. How come there aren't that many miracles in our life? Are we doing something wrong? I mean, how does it work? There's all these things, Elijah and Moses and Jesus and the apostles. What, what are we missing? But it's good for us to remember that miracles are not the norm. Miracles are not even the norm in the Scriptures. Miracles are things that are extraordinary, even in the Bible. Now, we might say things like, life is a miracle. That's true to a, to a, in a certain way. We might say that every breath we take is a miracle. That's true in a certain way. But really, miracles are things where God acts contrary to the established way in which He has created His creation to work. For instance, bread appearing on the floor of the wilderness every day for 40 years, that's a miracle. An all-you-can-eat flour jar is a miracle. And what we should recognize about miracles is that miracles have a purpose, and a purpose is to arrive with the Word of God and say, this is, in fact, my Word. Pharaoh, open your ears. People of Israel, open your ears. Ahab, open your ears. Widow at Zarephath, open your ears. See, for 400 years before Moses arrived, there were no miracles in Egypt. Then Moses arrives, and boom, 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 miracles. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, hail, boils, locusts, darkness, death. There's the opening of the Red Sea. There's all kinds of miracles right with Moses. Then there's very few miracles for a long time. Hundreds of years. Then Elijah, boom, 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 miracles, then nothing. Hundreds of years until Jesus. Then there's all kinds of miracles again. When the Word appears, it comes with power. And it tells us to listen. But there's something different about Jesus. You see, Moses and Elijah, they embodied the Word of the Lord in a sense but not in its fullness. The Lord did miracles around them and through them. They didn't really do the miracles. But Jesus is different. When Jesus arrives, He is the Word of the Lord in the flesh. And the Lord put that manna on the ground around Moses. And He poured the flour into the jar every day Elijah didn't do it. But when Jesus breaks the bread, he multiplies it. He does it himself. Because Moses and Elijah, just like in the transfiguration, are meant to speak to us of Jesus. 
And as there was miracle bread with Moses and there was miracle bread with Elijah, so too there is with Jesus. Just last Sunday night, we looked at Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish. But even neater, I think, than that is Jesus' interpretation of the event. The crowds, you'd think they'd be satisfied with the, the miracle heaven bread, but they weren't. They wanted some more, and so they begin grumbling and challenging against Jesus. And they didn't want him. They wanted a quick hit of fresh-baked heaven bread. And so this is what we read. They said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's all about Jesus. We have bread before us this morning. It's not from heaven. It's from Strachan Ventil. It didn't show up on the floor of the sanctuary this morning. It didn't come from an all-you-can-eat jar. But it's miracle bread. It's miracle bread because God uses it to represent his son to us. It's miracle bread because in this bread, God satisfies the hungry souls of each and every one of us who take and eat in faith. It's miracle bread because when we pronounce the words of institution over it and we eat in faith, we are united. We are united by the Holy Spirit to the glorified, resurrected body of the Lord Jesus Christ who nourishes us, satisfies us, and gives us everything we stand in need of. You know, the hero of the story of the manna is the Lord. And the hero of the story of the all-you-can-eat flower jar is the Lord. And the hero of the story of the 5,000 being fed on five loaves is the Lord. And the Lord is the hero of this table as well. As we transition into our time in the supper, I want to just read these words to you that I found this past week from the great theologian Herman Bavink. He says, of primary importance... In the Lord's Supper is what God does, not what we do. The Lord's Supper is above all a gift of grace, a gift of God, a benefit of Christ, a means of communicating His grace. So let's come for His grace. Lord knows we need it. We need it every bit as much as that poor, hopeless widow in Zarephath needed it. Let's pray together. Lord, we do need your grace. And we come to this table in just a moment for exactly that. Feed us. As you fed with the manna, as you fed in the flower jar, as you fed with the loaves, feed us. But not 
just on bread, but on the body of Christ given for us. We pray in Jesus' name.